If you would turn with me in the Bible uh, to Exodus chapter 20, uh, we're going to be looking at a passage from the Old Testament this morning, uh, and then a, the Christmas story from the New Testament. Uh, but the Old Testament passage is Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 26. I think it's page 72 in the Pew Bibles. Is, is that right? Page 72 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, so I'm going to start by reading the Old Testament passage, the Exodus passage, and uh, then we'll get to the Luke passage later on in the message. So let me read for us Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 26. We've been doing a series through the book of Exodus, and this uh, uh, passage uh, actually sort of surprisingly, I think, looks forward to uh, what the Christmas message is all about. So this is right after uh, the Ten Commandments, when God has spoken the Ten Commandments to the people from Mount Sinai, and this is uh, what happens afterwards. Exodus 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me. And sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. What makes for a really good Christmas? I think for some of us, part of the answer is great food. Uh, when I was growing up, Christmas Eve dinner always included pickled herring, German sausage, Swedish coffee bread, and lingonberry jam. Uh, most people passed over the pickled herring, but there were a few of us who looked forward to it every year. We never ate it any other time than Christmas Eve, and those were just the appetizers. There was the main course after that, and then there was chocolate pie, apple pie, pecan pie, and all kinds of other wonderful desserts. Then, on Christmas Day, I would get to see the other side of my family, the Italian side, and as everybody knows, we Italians love to eat. Pasta, sauce, cheese, meat, seafood, everything, it's all good. A good Christmas includes great food. Uh, but others might say, a really good Christmas includes great gifts. Uh, now, if you're under the age of 18, you're probably uh, anticipating the presents you will get tonight or tomorrow morning. If you're a bit older, you might be a little less focused on the presents you'll get and more focused on the presents you'll give, right? But you want to get the gift that your kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews will be excited about and put to good use and maybe even remember that you gave it to them for a long time, right? For some people, Christmas means great food and great gifts. For others, Christmas means great experiences. Maybe you love listening to Christmas music. There's a lot of wonderful Christmas music whether it's quiet and meditative, whether it's joyful and exuberant, whether it's classical or soulful choirs or rock and roll bands, there's all kinds of good stuff out there. Maybe you like to dress up 
wearing ugly Christmas sweaters. I honestly have no idea where that tradition came from. Uh, or maybe you prefer more aesthetically pleasing Christmas outfits and snapping some good family photos. Or maybe it's the magical feeling. Every once in a while we get lucky and we get a snowfall around this time of year. Not this year, but who knows, maybe next year. Looking out upon the first snowfall around Christmas time and thinking how magical it is. Great food, great gifts, great experiences. Are those the things that make a really good Christmas? What makes a really good Christmas? That's the question I want us to consider this morning. And the verses I just read from the book of Exodus can actually help us to answer that question. Now, when I read those verses, many of you might have thought, why in the world is he reading those verses on Christmas Eve? Those verses have nothing to do with Christmas. Fair question. Uh, again, for those of you who have been coming here this fall, you know we've been going through the book of Exodus, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We started back in May with chapter 1, and we'll probably end in chapter 40 uh, in next May or June, somewhere like that, somewhere around there. So we're about halfway through the book. These are the next verses. Uh, and I'll be honest, when I first read those verses and I was planning out my sermons, part of me was tempted to just skip them. Because I thought, well, we just did the Ten Commandments. And then in chapter 21, there's another major section that comes. Uh, they can seem like a short and slightly random aside, right? Tells how the people responded to the Ten Commandments, the thunder and lightning and on the mountain. And then it has these sort of strange sounding commands about building altars. What do those have to do with us today? Uh, but as I was reflecting on these two paragraphs uh, a little more, um, I think they actually point us to the heart of what Christmas is about. Uh, these uh, these uh, verses teach us two things about God. The first thing, uh, the first paragraph, verse 18 through 21, teaches us that God is far off and dwells in unapproachable glory. But second, verses 22 through 26, the second paragraph says, God comes near to us to dwell with us in humble simplicity. God is far off and lives in unapproachable glory, but God comes near to dwell with us in humble simplicity. And as we'll see, that's really the heart of what Christmas is about. So let me look at these, let's look at these two points together. First, God is far off and dwells in unapproachable glory, verses 18 through 21. So when the people of Israel came to Mount Sinai, God appeared to them in overwhelming glory. There was thunder and flashes of lightning. There was a sound of a trumpet. Chapter 19, verse 19 says the sound grew louder and louder. The mountain was smoking as if it was on fire. And verse 21 says there was thick darkness covering the mountain where God was. In other words, where God was, thunder, lightning, smoke, fire, darkness was exactly the kind of place that we human beings don't want to go. If we hear thunder and flashes of lightning, we go inside and take cover. If we hear a loud siren approaching and it gets louder and louder so that you can't hear anything else and you can't even hear yourself talk, we cover our ears and hope it passes by quickly. If we see a mountain smoking and about to, about, it seems like it's about to be set on fire, we'll call off our plans for a day hike and get out of there. And if we see a cloud of thick black smoke covering a certain area, we'll keep our distance so we don't get caught and suffocated in the midst of it. And that's exactly how the people reacted here. When they saw God's glory, 
God's unapproachable glory descend on the top of the mountain in front of them. Verse 18 says they were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And verse 21 says again, the people stood far off. You see, according to the Bible, if you and I get to know the real God, if we are beginning to become aware of the real God, the God who is not just a figment of our imagination, the God who is not just a projection of our own wishes, we will feel some fear and trepidation about approaching God. You know, some people approach God with the assumption that their own agenda should prevail and God shouldn't get in the way. Sure, God, I'll go to church today, but I've got my own plans for the rest of the week. Don't interfere with those. Other people approach God believing that they can manipulate God or pacify him by doing a few good deeds, and then everything will be good. Other people imagine God to be like a giant fluffy marshmallow, automatically accepting of everyone, no hard edges, no moral judgments. But according to the Bible, all of those ideas are just projections of our own wishes, not reality. The real God in his very nature dwells in unapproachable glory. You see, God wasn't putting on an artificial smoke and light show to frighten the Israelites when he appeared to them on Mount Sinai. No, he was simply revealing to them his very nature. Think about the very nature of lightning. According to the National Weather Service, there are approximately 300 million volts of electricity in one lightning flash on average. Lightning inherently, by its very nature, contains enough voltage to fry any of us. It's not that lightning is mean or hateful. It's simply the fact that we can't come in direct contact with lightning and survive if it if all 300 million of those volts pass right through us. If we see from a distance an intense thunderstorm or a raging wildfire, we respect those things for what they are. And according to the Bible, if we become aware of the true and living God, we should respect God for who God is. In 2021, William Shatner, uh, the actor who played Captain Kirk in the Star Trek movies, became the oldest living person to travel into space. He was 90 years old. Pretty amazing exploit, right? After he returned to Earth, he reflected on his experience in outer space. He had some very interesting reflections. He said this, I love the mystery of the universe. Stars exploding years ago, their light traveling to us years later, black holes absorbing energy, Satellites showing us entire galaxies, all of that has thrilled me for years. But when I went up into space and looked around me, all I saw was death. Cold, dark, black emptiness. It was deep, enveloping, all-encompassing. I had thought that going into space would be the next beautiful step to encounter understanding the harmony of the universe. It was among the strongest feelings of grief I have ever encountered. My trip to space was supposed to be a celebration. Instead, it felt like a funeral. Now, I don't know whether William Shatner believes in God or how he would describe God or his higher power, but here's what he said. He was attracted to the mystery and beauty of the universe, and yet when he encountered the cold, hard reality of outer space, he felt completely alone and vulnerable 
and undone. Right? If he tried to encounter the mystery of outer space directly without the protection of a spacesuit and, space, space and a space shuttle, he wouldn't survive. He was reckoning with the reality of outer space, which was different than what he had previously imagined it to be. And the Bible says that when we encounter the true God, God is not exactly what we imagine him to be. The Bible says we need to reckon with the unapproachable glory of God and let go of our imaginations and preconceptions that are inconsistent with who God has revealed himself to be. Now, if you take just this first paragraph, verse 18 to 21, by itself, it's honestly sort of a scary picture. The people see God far away from a distance, and they're afraid, and they stay far off. And they tell Moses, you go speak to God. Don't let him speak to us. But there's one glimmer of comfort and hope in this paragraph. Verse 20 the people say, don't let God speak to us or we'll die. And Moses says in verse 20, don't fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Now, isn't that a very interesting response? God says first, don't fear, but then he says, fear, that the fear of him may be before you. What does that mean? Well, God's saying, don't fear. In other words, he's saying, don't run away. I'm not just out to get you. God did not come down on Mount Sinai with the intention of destroying the people. Yes, he dwells in unapproachable glory. Yes, his very nature is even more powerful than lightning and thunder and fire and every, everything we can imagine. But God says, I'm revealing myself to you with a good purpose to test you so that you may not sin. In other words, so that you may not turn away from God. So first he says, don't fear, don't run away. But then he says, do fear in another sense, that the fear of God may be before you. Don't fear in the sense of running away from God, but do fear in the sense of respecting God for who God is. Let that reverent fear of God be your spiritual compass. Go before you. Let the desire to rightly honor God be at the center of your vision. So that's the first half of what we see in this passage. God is far off and dwells in unapproachable glory. But having established that, verses 22 through 26, the second paragraph, give us a surprisingly hopeful message. God comes near to dwell with us in humble simplicity. Look for a moment at this paragraph with me. Uh, verse 22 is sort of a transitional verse. God says to Moses, uh, to tell the people, you've seen for yourselves, I've spoken to you from heaven. God had given them the Ten Commandments, which are about loving God with our, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving our neighbors as ourselves. It's a good way to live. And then God goes on to give them four warnings. Verse 23, he gives them two warnings. In verse 25 and 26, he gives them two warnings. So verse 23 says, don't make gods of silver or gods of gold. Verse 25 and 26 say, if you build an altar, don't use tools and don't use steps. You might say, what's the point of all those warnings? Basically, it's this. Don't corrupt the worship of God by making it too complicated and fancy. God was saying to the people, don't think that having or displaying all your fancy things, gold, silver, 
carved altars. Don't think that you can attract God to you by displaying to him all of your fancy things. When we worship God, God is supposed to take center stage, not any of us. God won't be attracted to an expensive statue of silver or gold. God dwells in unapproachable glory, after all. He's not attracted to any of our bling. Neither will God be attracted to a fancy-looking altar or something that appeals to human sensual desires, verse 26. All of those things were common in the ancient world, statues of gold and silver, fancy carved altars, centrally arousing religious ceremonies, and God says, no, none of that stuff is attractive to me. In fact, all of that can just be people trying to make themselves the center of attention. But in verse 24, verse 24 is the heart of this paragraph, and God says, what is attractive to him? God says, an altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. Now, what's an altar of earth? It's a pile of dirt and rocks. It's an outdoor fire pit with a makeshift barbecue grill. It's the simplest, most primitive and basic kind of altar imaginable. Nothing fancy, nothing elaborate, nothing to boast about compared to somebody else's altar down the street. Anyone could build such an altar anywhere and offer their sacrifices to God. Now back then, one of the ways that people worshiped God was by offering animal sacrifices Uh, It sounds a little strange to us, but for a burnt offering, the slain animal would be completely burned to a crisp and no one would eat any of it. The idea of that offering was wholehearted dedication to God, something that was for God alone and not for your own benefit. The idea of a peace offering, on the other hand, was basically a barbecue. You would kill an animal, roast it, thank God for it, and chow down together. It was a feast. It was a way of celebrating the fellowship that people had with God. Now, since Jesus came, we don't sacrifice animals anymore as part of our worship of God. But we can still do what these sacrifices symbolized, to dedicate ourselves to God wholeheartedly and say, God, I want to do this for you and not for my own, not to get a pat on the back, not for my own benefit. And we can celebrate the fellowship we have with God. And verse 24 reminds us we can do this absolutely anywhere. In every place, God says at the end of verse 24, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I'll come to you and bless you. Now, you might know if you've read the Bible a lot that later in the Old Testament, God does tell his people to build a temple in Jerusalem, which was sort of a central location for the worship of God uh, for many years, where he promised to meet with them and bless them. And that temple was not just a pile of dirt and rocks. It was large. It was lavish. It was elaborate. Excuse me. Uh, But even before that large and lavish and elaborate temple existed, and even after that temple would later be destroyed, God had made this promise. I'll come and meet you wherever you After all, that's how he had appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He appeared to them in all kinds of places. Sometimes they were literally homeless and on the run. And they had little or nothing to their name. And they called upon the name of the Lord, and they would sometimes make a little pile of rocks to say, to remember and thank God for helping them and coming close to them in a certain place. 
the true and living God who lives in unapproachable glory comes to live with us in the simplest and humblest of places. I mean, especially after what we've seen in verses 18 through 21, do you see how amazing this promise is in verse 24? The God who spoke with thunder and lightning from the mountaintop, the God who makes the earth quake and tremble, the God who dwells in thick darkness that our human minds cannot comprehend, promises to be present with us at the simplest pile of dirt and rocks when we come before him in humble simplicity. Whenever and wherever God puts within us the desire to seek after him, to know the truth about who he is, or to call upon his name and give him the praise that he deserves, he promises to bless us with his presence and come near to us. No matter what we have, no matter what we lack, whether we're in a church building, whether we're around a fire pit in the backyard, whether we're in the middle of the woods, Isaiah 57, 15 puts it this way, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And ultimately, that's what Christmas is all about. That the God of the universe who dwells in unapproachable glory in a high and holy place has come to dwell with us in humble simplicity. Jesus Christ doesn't require us to produce anything fancy, elaborate, or complicated in order to draw near to him. He doesn't look at us from the outside and measure us up based on how we're dressed, based on our financial resources, based on how many good works we've done in our life based on our resume or all the other ways that people judge one another. No, he simply wants us to receive him with humble and contrite and unpretentious hearts. Will you turn with me to Luke chapter 2? It's page 1018 in your pew Bibles. I want to wrap up this morning by just reading just a few verses from the Christmas story. Luke chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 8 through 12. The first seven verses of chapter 2 tell how Jesus was born, how Jesus was laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths. And verse 8 tells us about the first people who heard the news that the Messiah had been born, and the first people who were invited to come and see him and come and be in his presence. Verse 8 says, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. You see, when God's son came to earth, he didn't seek out a fancy palace. He was laid in a simple manger. And he didn't send his messengers to summon the best-dressed people, the most prominent people. He sent his angels to a group of shepherds, a group of guys working third shift outdoors at a messy job. Most people's idea of a good Christmas does not involve working third shift outdoors at a messy job. 
I assume. But those were the guys who got the first invitation to come and see the Messiah. And at the end of the night, they went home glorifying and praising God for what they had heard and seen. They had the best Christmas ever because that night they met the Savior of the world. You see, all the things that we enjoy and that we associate with Christmas, food, drinks, gifts, music, clothes, decorations, photos, parties, none of them are bad things. In fact, the coming of Christ into the world gives us plenty of reasons to celebrate and to enjoy and share the many good gifts that God has generously given to us. But the danger of associating Christmas with all those things, food and drinks, gifts and music, clothes and decorations, photos and parties, is that we can make Christmas all about us. What we've created, what we've cooked, what we've bought, what we'll get, even what we'll give. Sometimes we can make Christmas very complicated and very stressful when the reality that it's pointing to is very simple. That the God who dwells in unapproachable glory has come to dwell with us in humble simplicity. That's what Christmas is about. Now for those of us who associate Christmas with food and feasting, the Bible invites us to see, to taste and see that the Lord is good. It says that Jesus is the bread of life, that feasting on him will satisfy our souls not just for a night, but for all eternity and throughout our earthly life. For those of us who associate Christmas with gifts and with giving, the Bible says that Jesus is the greatest gift of all, the gift that doesn't grow old, wear out, or fade away. And for those of us who associate Christmas with experiences of beauty, with music and clothes and winter, the Bible says that no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has conceived the good things that God has prepared for those who love him. Maybe you're looking forward to a really good Christmas. Maybe you've got it all planned out. Great food, great gifts, great experience, great people to gather with. If so, thank God for all those good gifts. But make Jesus the center of your celebration. And if this Christmas you feel more aware of what you lack than of what you have, if you are not going to have the Christmas you were hoping for, for one reason or another. If all that you can come up with feels like a pile of dirt and rocks, know that if you call upon the name of the Lord, he will come and bless you like he blessed those shepherds out in the fields at night. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you. You are great and glorious. You are worthy to be praised. You dwell in unapproachable light. No one, has, no one can come into your presence on our own. And yet we thank you for humbling yourself, coming to dwell with us in simplicity. What amazing mercy and grace you have shown us. We pray that we would receive you and enjoy you and treasure you during this Christmas season and throughout the coming year. 
Help us to, we thank you for, you've given us many good gifts. Clothes, food, all kinds of things. Help us to enjoy them and share them with others and thank you for them, but help us to find you as our greatest treasure and our greatest joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.